Welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast, where we're joined by your hosts, Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. In each episode, we'll be sharing valuable insights and tips to help you turn your NDIS business into a profitable venture. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your business to the next level, you've come to the right place. Let's stop surviving and start thriving. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Tanya, and today we are speaking with registered nurse and NDIS auditor, Haley Asaf, about the requirement for providers to be registered or endorsed under the NDIS review recommendations. G'day, guys. How are you going? Good, thanks, Paul. Lovely to have Good. you with us today, Haley. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. So a, a quick debrief for everyone who hasn't been watching this space. There has been a uh, NGS review report has been released last Thursday. It has made recommendations for 26 uh, items and 139 actions. Um, and we've done three episodes. This is our third episode on um, the review. This this the first one was around uh, with Debbie Kindness around living and accommodation recommendations. The second one we released on Friday around the support coordination and plan management changes. And this is our last one in the series around the review. And we are now talking about this new regulation model. Um, and that is why we have another auditor joining us today. Um, welcome, Haley. To begin with, do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself and um, also let us know about uh, any high-level thoughts about these recommendations that you've had over the past week? Thanks, Tanya. Uh, so a little bit of background about me. I'm a registered nurse. I've been nursing for 12 years, uh, working mostly in the neuro space, so working closely with people with um, physical disability. With um, I've worked in a traumatic brain injury unit. Um, I've worked in a neurosurgical unit. Um, I still keep in touch with my clinical skills working in the hospital from time to time, but I've been in the NDIS auditing world now for um, four years and absolutely love it. So um, I'm a technical expert, which um, if, if you're not sure what that means, it basically means because I'm a registered nurse, I'm able to audit module one component, the high intensity support module. Um, so that's sort of my forte in the NDIS auditing um, aspect. So that's a little bit about me. And I do um, also work for an online disability training organisation where I develop course content as an SME. And I've been doing that for a few years too. Um, so thank you for having me here today. And um, your question, uh, Tanya, so look, in the last week, it's, it's, I think it's fantastic, but there's a lot to think about, a lot to explore and um, and talk about to understand it better. I think that um, It'll be good to, I think if we all just keep talking about it, it's really important to further understand how the changes are going to um, be pursued. How is how is everything going to be actioned over the next five years? Um, so it'll be interesting to chat today more about um, about the NDIS registered providers, well, everyone having to be NDIS registered and how that, uh, yeah. How that's going to work. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely something to think about. And I think we all kind of saw this coming in one way or another. Um, but I might just break down what the proposal is or the recommendation is. So I, I guess um, the new regulatory model is comes from Recommendation 17, which says um, to develop and deliver a, a risk proportionate model for the visibility and regulation of all providers and workers and strengthen the regulatory response to long-standing and emerging quality and safeguarding issues. Um, to set the scene, the review states that there are gaps in oversight of providers, particularly delivering high-risk supports. In the NDIS, the registration process aims to ensure that providers and their workers are reputable and have the skills and knowledge to deliver supports. While registration is not a guarantee of either safety or quality, it ensures visibility and does indicate a provider has taken steps to deliver supports professionally and competently. And this is an important way of holding providers to account. 
Um, it then goes on to say that most providers can opt out of registration and registration is only mandatory for a limited number of high-risk supports. We obviously know that that is uh, Module 5 and Module 2 or Specialist Behaviour Supports and Specialist Disability Accommodation and Plan Management um, and that the growth in unregistered providers has been driven by a large number of self-managing and plan-managing participants with 29% of participants self-managing all or part of their plan and 60% being plan managed. Um, they then talked about in the April to June period that there was 154,000 unregistered providers that received uh, payments through a plan manager and there's only 16,000 current registered providers in the market. Um, they then talked a little bit about unregistered providers not meeting any uh, standards beyond the code of conduct and having a limited understanding and therefore flowing, uh, flying below the radar. So I, I don't think any of that is new to us. I think that's something that we're all kind of aware of. But was there any surprises in that for you, Hayley? Um, just the amount, the amount of unregistered providers that we don't know about really. I mean, it's not a real surprise. It's just alarming, isn't it? I guess um, to to see the, that number um, and not really yeah. know. But I do, um, yeah, have some feedback on that as well. I do think that um, it's so important that there is more oversight to ensure that workers have the skills, the knowledge, and the confidence when providing high risk supports and services. So um, I do think it's absolutely necessary to have providers be registered specifically uh, when you think about how many providers are out there with support workers providing complex bowel care, urinary catheter care, tracheostomy care and there's no oversight to know do they even have the skills, the knowledge, the competence, have they had training to be able to do that. There's so much risk involved there and I think that this is such a great thing that providers will need to be registered to be able to, um, to provide these services. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Mm. I think that 154,000, like in, in I've never seen those stats before, right? That's obviously new information. I've always said that there there was double the amount. So if there's 16,000 unregistered, I thought there was about 32,000 of unregistered providers. Um, and when I first started, I used to say 10,000 registered. Uh, I think I used to say yeah, 10,000 registered, 5,000 unregistered. So obviously over the last 10 years, those numbers have just come out of control. Um, mm. And look, obviously that could be like something like a chemist, right? Or it could be a gardener, but you're right. It equally could be a supported independent living home that is doing 24-7 supports for someone who just doesn't have a behaviour support plan but has other complex medical issues. And I guess there is just so much risk. Mm. Um, and you hear all sorts of things that the um, review uh, had a, a town hall meeting last week that I attended. Um, and in that, they were talking about, you know, the group home participants that are just basically abducted and not able to leave the group home and are um, stuck in there. And there's a, a whole lot of those that are unregistered. And so I think we need to see regulation in this space. Um this might be like the, the elephant in the room and I haven't put it in my notes, so I'm kind of putting you both on the spot. But when I when I went to the, the town hall panel and just the feedback online about the idea of unregistered providers is this idea that, that participants are going to lose choice and control. And I guess I wanted to speak, to ask both of you about your thoughts on does this impact choice and control? I obviously have an opinion, but um, Hayley, what, what's your thought about protecting choice and control? Why by ensuring you still have visibility. Yep, I actually attended that too. It was great, wasn't it, Tanya? Um, and great to hear what um, uh, Minister Bill Shorten had to say as well. I, I don't think that choice and control will be affected because the NDIS review was taking into consideration participant feedback. So I really don't think that choice and control will be um you know something that's not considered at all with this the only the only thing I guess the only aspect I think of is for those participants who do have um maybe a a, a provider who's a you know sole trader like a sole support worker and they don't wish to become registered 
but um, it will impact them. I do think that if they want that choice and control to have them and they, um, I don't know, that's something, to, it is a challenge to think about, but I just, I really don't think that choice and control isn't a top priority here. I saw that idea of uh, choice and control being taken away, but I'm going to say this as someone who doesn't need a provider and so the choice is not really mine to decide whether it is or not, but all I see is if it's across the board and the, the variations in registration that they're talking about, some people are simply enrolled that they have met a certain level of requirements, a smaller provider can meet these sort of requirements. Um, larger, requi larger providers offering higher levels of service have a higher level of requirements. Um, I think it's really just holding providers in general to a set standard that you must be this tall to ride, essentially. You have to have these things in place, you have to have these systems, you have to have this training in order to be able to provide supports. So if anything, I feel like we're actually going to end up with um, a, a better service from which providers, which participants can choose from. They're obviously welcome to choose anybody in this space. It's not like they're saying you can choose any provider as long as it's that one, you, but the, um, the providers will still vary. It's just that they will all be through some form of registration. So I think it's well worth it. But again, it'll be interesting to see what actually washes out at the end of the day. For, for me, my thought is that in every other government-funded scheme, you have approved providers, whatever you want to call them. So mm. I come from a childcare centre background, then I worked in schools, then I worked in registered training organisations, and I am a mum that has children in childcare and in school. And if I want the government funding, I have to send my child to a, a childcare centre that has, um, you know, the CCMS or whatever the funding is called, um, and they've gone through an accreditation process with the government to say that they can receive that funding. I did choose with one of my children to send him to a preschool that didn't have that funding and I had to pay that out of my pocket. I have chosen over the years to have au pairs or babysitters and I've paid those out of my pocket knowing there's no government rebate because they're not approved providers. Um, and as the parent, that's my choice to make that, that decision on is there a risk there that these people aren't as qualified and am I happy to pay the money knowing there's no government subsidy where I would get a government government subsidy using an approved provider. And the same in registered training organisations. I can choose to go and do a certificate three in childcare like I did. I chose TAFE because it was free at TAFE and it was government subsidised. I could have gone to a private college and paid $10,000 and maybe that would have been a better choice for me if that was the right location and there was more job opportunities or whatever the, the pathway was. So again, if I want to use the government subsidised providers, I need to go someone who has gone through the requirement to get that specific government funding contract mm. and meet the requirements of that government contract. The same for, a, for a, a, a GP. I could go to someone who's just arrived in Australia and isn't recognised by APRA and pay them out of my pocket, or I can go to someone who's recognised by both by APRA, but also by um, my Medicare or my, sorry, my um, private health insurance. I need to choose one on their list if I want to get the full thing and not pay a gap. So I, I can't see the idea here that, you know, that there's no choice in control. You are choosing to use government subsidised money. It isn't the participants' fun money. It is government money. And it's also a yeah. fiduciary mm. responsibility of the government to make sure that government funds are spent in a way that ensures best value mm -hmm. for taxpayers. That's the actual whole argument here is that is an unregistered provider doing a, a job that taxpayers should be paying for, are they less qualified? Are they less trained? Are they giving value for money? And then you've got the safety risk. So for me, it, it, this choice and control argument doesn't make sense. I know that I don't have a disability, um, but I know plenty of people who decide to use a surgeon who's not covered by their Medicare or their private health and pay out of the pocket. And I kind of think what we're doing here is the same thing. Um, my second kind of thought is that the standards already are supposed to be proportionate. We have verified and we have certified and we have special modules. And if an auditor is a good auditor, they are able to adapt mm -hmm. the standards in most places to be proportionate. 
there are some things that are required of all providers. Like, you know, if we talk about the governance, the core module, and we look at the governance standards, every provider needs to have a delegated authority register it's, or a, dele- a document for delegated authority. Um, and that doesn't change if you're a sole trader or if you're a multinational company. That requirement is for everyone. But obviously, that document itself is proportionate. I kind of feel like as an auditor, and look, I've done as many audits as I've I've sat on both sides of the table. I've been audited uh, before with my clients as many times as I've audited. Um, and so I'm I'm probably more in the provider's camp than I am the government camp, I suppose. But I, I see a lot of auditors not able to apply proportionality. And I think something that's been missed in this report is the whole idea of like the, the approved quality auditing bodies haven't been mentioned once. There's no indication of how are we going to regulate this and uh, is the AQA framework working with 19 auditing yeah. bodies? How do you ensure quality and the same standards between auditing bodies? And I guess for me, that's more of my thought is I haven't seen any consultation done with AQAs or auditors like myself. I, I've registered 53% of all registered providers. I feel like the information I have on the process, the information I have about what works and what doesn't, and from an auditor's perspective, would be very valuable. I know where the loopholes are because I have clients all the time trying to get through these loopholes. And I think that government also needs to open its consultation to talking to both auditing bodies um, and auditors about how is this actually going to be rolled out because we're the people on the ground that's going to be enforcing this if they stay with the same current model. And I feel like maybe there needs to be some more consultation there so it doesn't become a box ticking exercise. I feel in many ways the process is a box ticking exercise. And, you know, if you get a bad auditor on a bad day, your your process yeah. can be remarkably different than if you get the same auditor on a good day. And that just tells me that the system isn't working if there's enough discretion in there for an individual to make that much impact on the process. What do you think about that, Haley? More with that, Tanya. From an, from an auditor's perspective, 100%, as we know, um, I, and from a, from a consulting and auditor's perspective, um, it depends on the auditor, which, you know, absolutely shouldn't be that way. Um, they really cannot, there are a lot of auditors who cannot apply proportionality. They don't understand what that means and they may audit a, um, a provider providing core supports and a specialist uh, behaviour support practitioner um, provider trying to audit a specialist behaviour support practitioner provider, the same as a core support provider, it doesn't work. And, um, yeah. yeah, so I definitely agree with what you said 100%. Mm. Yeah, it's there a challenge. And I, I don't know how. Training, yeah, I think some sort of training or, um, you know, there needs to be some close consultation, like you said, um, with AQAs to streamline things because, um as you know, with auditors, they're often subcontracted, so they may work two for multiple, and one will work differently than another one, and have different processes and audit slightly different, and it should all be the same. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I don't, I can't see the regulator taking back this responsibility if they're going to have to register one hundred and fifty-four thousand people, you know, plus the sixteen thousand already registered people, but. When the NGOs first rolled out between 2013 and 2019, before there was the commission, the actual registration process for um, for providers was actually just uploading a stat deck. Um, it was before you had a proto account. It was before the application. They just uploaded a, a stat deck, and I think they think there was one form of ID they uploaded at that point. And so I think if you made the the lowest level, this endorse level, as simple as that, you probably you probably wouldn't need an auditor as part of that. Obviously, the commission or whoever the regulating body is going to be can manage that. But I think. I've seen like in the ch- in childcare centres, it's regulated by the regulator directly um, and same for registered training organisations. Um, but there's a lot of schemes that, that are done through approved quality auditing body type arrangements. I kind of wonder, are the AQAs only a temporary measure until the NDOS Commission can regulate themselves mm. directly 
or like is it just in this setup phase of the first 10, 15 years of the NDIS? Or is this something that's just to minimise their risk long term? Do they want to be able to push back and say, you know, this is on the AQA? Um, and recently, I've been watching that that case about the unauthorised restrictive practices to children in, I think it was Arimbia or something yeah. like that, uh, service provider. I've been watching that um, and I saw that there was fallout from the commissioner and the deputy commissioner uh, stood down and now the commissioner is being asked questions about it because they were doing unauthorised restrictive practices for five years as a registered provider. So, of course, I jump on the, the portal and have a look and see what I can find out and they're still registered. It still says registered. It's not showing any conditions yeah. on their registration um, and I just wonder why is the auditor and the AQA's responsibility in that? You know, if it's a third-party yeah. arrangement with a third-party auditing body, the government in this instance hasn't said it's over to the auditor. So are they really using this to minimise their liability or is all of this done, you know, outside of the media where we can't see it and is there actually penalties for the AQAs for not picking up things like unauthorised restrictive practices on children? Um, and if so, how are we fixing the yeah. AQA problem? Because that seems to be more of the issue than the actual the framework of proportionality or the framework of regulation they have now. Um, and I don't think that that's covered yep. anywhere in this review. No one's thought about what's the impact of a third party auditing body. What's the impact of having a, a completely um, contract workforce in auditors and the, the way that auditors work between auditing bodies and the varying standards um, I think that that really needs to be looked at somewhere and it doesn't seem to be on the radar. I don't know if anyone's mentioned that um, to it. Obviously, they must be aware of it, but I would kind of have hoped that maybe the next steps is actually to review the framework for the auditors um, and the actual implementation piece. And historically, government hasn't been good at the implementation piece. They're good at writing the legislation and setting a vision um, and then it's usually executed quite poorly. And you've seen that like in the pink bats or the RTO vet fee help funding or the family daycare funding, all of those, and even the the, the school hall building projects, all of those government, the, the scheme ideas were great, but the execution was poor. And I, I kind of don't want to end up with another poorly executed school, uh, you know, system when the one that we have, they said at the review thing is stuffed and broken, but from my perspective, it's doing its job at having a benchmark or a barrier to entry to make it a little bit challenging for people to be registered. Um, and I think that that's very much needed when you're talking about the safety of, you know, uh, people with disability. Um, yeah. I feel the like I just went on a complete tirade there. Involved is... No, but I couldn't agree more, Tanya. Um, I think that, um, yeah, wonder why they didn't, they didn't consider that um, the framework with the AQAs and um, it's definitely such a risk too, but they're obviously aware of it. So, yeah, I wonder if that will change in the next 10 years. Um, mm. But the vulnerability that NDIS participants or anyone living with disability have is just um, huge. So I think this is really important, definitely necessary. I, I look at that idea of that provider with the five-year lead in and you know there's three to four audits there that that, that went through that um mm -hmm. obviously things weren't picked up or whatever it is um when we look at the level of um i guess auditing that they had to receive and the amount of time that re-registration takes and the initial registration takes if we're going to introduce uh like four levels of registration now and the government literally can't keep up with the people that are trying to register at the moment Hayley, how do you think that they would have to make this work? Like, have you got any ideas on um, how they could improve this process or, the, to be honest, the reality of a four-tiered registration enrolment process? No, they just need to, they need to make their team bigger. <laughs> Is that the simplest answer? They need to make their team bigger. They need yeah. to, they need to, um, their registration team needs to change. The whole, um, I just completely, I just think that they just need more in the team to cover off on all of that and they need to have a really, really stringent process in place like to follow. Um, that's sort of my simplest answer to that um, because they're already, they're not keeping up 
we've got providers that are going through their renewal or recertification registration and a year later or a year and a half later still waiting for that um, to come through. Yeah. Mm. So I just don't understand how they will keep up unless they've got a really good plan in place about, um, a, you know, a good process in place about how they're going to streamline things and, and yeah, that's all I can. There's so many challenges yeah. to it, I do think. I have a client at the moment whose um, recertification audit is due in July and we've been trying to go through and press the button to start the process and the button's not there. And I couldn't figure out why is this button not there? Like we're, we're, we're closer than six months in. We need to start this process. We're, they're very proactive and it's because their midterm audit that was done you know, at least a year ago, hasn't been finalised by the commission, so we can't start wow. the recertification process. Yeah. And so they've told us that they will fix yeah. it by, I think it was some day in May, but the recertification is due in July. So they're not going to wow. make the button available till May. Obviously, we can do prep and other things, but it's like that would then be sixteen months it has taken them to do the mid to actually review their midterm audit, and this is a provider that That's has terrible. multiple sill housing. The risk is high; they have multiple modules, and it's just sat there for eighteen months. Like, what if there was like, there's no problem with them; they're an amazing provider. But what if there was a problem there? What if there was a risk there? What if they're you know, how mm. has it taken that long from the from when the AQA sent in the report? We got the report. You know, let's wow. call it ten days later. It sat there for 16 months with the commission, and they're like, "Oh, we're not making the button available till it's finalised." It's like, why are we being penalised? Why is the client being penalised because yeah. you're slow? It doesn't make any sense. And we know that the midterm audits they always have like they're the most high risk I find because often providers either didn't do a record it and had you know this is their full certification audit they've grown substantially they've got lots of participants. And yes, they may very well be amazing and doing the right thing, but for those that aren't, that's that's the scariest part. Um, and often, I think that's where the most findings or non-conformities are found during midterm audits. And the fact that there's only that um, governance section that's actually popped into Proda um, as well, I just feel like it's it's not capturing every, enough, and it's not um, being reviewed quick enough because I have come across that too, Tanya, where um, providers' recertification order is nearly four years later, not three years later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. From when they register the first time, it's such a long period. They'll have a year, you know, half a year through audit, then it's a year of waiting and then it's 18 months from when they get that. So it's usually two and a half years till their midterm and then it would be, you know, four or maybe five years until their recertification. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yep. A lot can um, happen in five years. Yep. That's right. Yeah, it's a bit scary, isn't it, to think? And I think it, and I don't know why it's taking so long as well. Like the, uh, I, I think when the commission first rolled out, there was forty staff at the commission in the Penrith office, but I believe now that's quite a large team. So I'm not sure why the hold up or how they review risk or how things are flagged. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, um, at least just from an outsider's perspective but I'm sure I'm sure look I'm sure they're doing it's an incredibly challenging job I'm sure they're doing the best thing that the best they possibly can with the resources they have I just wonder about yeah what resources are they going to be given to actually go through I know in the review it said a few times that they didn't have any teeth um, and we saw as a result of those the um, unauthorised restrictive practices on those children that they were given a certain date that they had to go um, actually get some teeth. And as a response, they sent out 7,500 letters to implementing providers. And I've had mm. at least 15 clients that have received breach notices. Um, and so that's obviously now, it's but it's always this knee-jerk reaction to something in the media. And it's, you know, highly political as opposed to being proactive. Mm. and constant 
Um, it's this reaction of, oh, well, you know, if if Four Corners never got that video, would we even be here right now? Like, the, it's, it's that yeah. reaction as opposed to being a regulator who is proactive and looking for challenges. And they have so much data, mm. right? Like, they have every unauthorised restrictive practice. They have every incident report surely they can use that data and risk rate that data to actually identify risks and proactively manage those risks. You would think that that I would be the highest if, priority. Yeah, I do wonder, like you said earlier, on um, Tanya, why, um, you know, I haven't seen anything on the caution, on the cautions list um, or the banning order. They're definitely not banned because they're still yeah. registered. So um, must be under you know, serious investigation, obviously, but I just wonder why they haven't already had a caution, um, yeah. you know, even a caution notice or anything um, crazy to think. Yeah. And but then the, for the registered training organisations, <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge. I think yeah. for, for registered training organisations, there's a portal called training.gov and you can look at everyone's, everyone gets a number, an RTO number. You can put in their RTO number or their name and you can see in live time if there's any issues, like you have the regulatory actions are there. So as soon as the regulator does anything, it's updated live on the register. And I don't think many people know about this. It's not really supposed to be, um, you know, for students as such, but as an educated person, if you'd want to get some information on, do I want to be working with this provider? It's all publicly available in real time. It's probably a bit of a delay, um, but it will tell you, you know, when their registration date is, when their audit is commencing, how long they received, what was the outcome of their last audit. And I think that that's really, you know, we, we there is a enforcement uh uh, you can look up the registered. You can look up the registered provider, but it would be good to have information in there, like what was the results of their last audit. For RTOs, for ages, we had to put the results of our last audit on our web page. We had to have a, a landing page uh, under Queensland state funding. You had to show the results of your last audit and put your audit reports to yeah, be publicly right. available. So I think there's so many government schemes out there that have been mm -hmm. around for a long time that the government could be looking towards. And obviously, I've spent so long in RTOs that I look at the parallels and go, well, you know, there's 5,000 RTOs that are registered. It, it, we probably need to have quadruple that. But if you can do it in that sector, surely there's a framework. And, and people would say that that's flawed still. And, it, and it's still obviously everything isn't perfect. But you've got some really great frameworks that you could build upon here as opposed to thinking you have to be starting from scratch because regulating of services and disability isn't that far from regulating hospitals or regulating aged care environments or regulating RTOs or regulating childcare centres. Like the human element is the same. The, the requirement around safety is the same. There's a whole lot of legislation that is similar. You think that they would just choose a framework and build upon it and continue to improve it as opposed to, I feel like this review was saying throw it all out and start again, where I think there's some elements we should be keeping, um, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater type of analogy is what comes to mind with a lot of the recommendations. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I, I think there's going to be a lot of, yeah, I, I yeah, couldn't agree more, Tanya. Not only with RTOs, they do that with childcare centres too, where they actually have their last results of you know how they're meeting they're the framework, whether it's you know exceeding expectations or if they're just you know working towards the requirements. And that would be fantastic if um, participants could actually see um, the you know how how their providers are um, tracking in terms of compliance with the requirements. Yeah. Yeah, and then we're changing it from registration to this idea of accreditation also, you know, an accredited provider. Yeah. I'd love to throw a question to both of you, I guess on behalf of our listeners who are um, considering registration, maybe they're already operating and they're going, yeah, now we're at the point we're thinking about registering. I mean, Tanya and I, we've obviously done a couple of episodes around should I register or should I not? Um, looking at the review now, knowing it is obviously a way down the track, would you consider that registration, like everyone should now be starting the process as it is to get a foot in the door? Or should they be waiting, if they don't need to be registered, should they be waiting to see what actually rolls out in the future? I'll let Haley answer that first. Your thoughts on that one, Haley? <laughs> Thanks, Tanya. Um, I think it really depends on the size, um, the types of services they're providing already. And because ugh, depends on the risk 
of the supports they're providing as well. But I don't think that everyone should be rushing to do it because there's going to be an influx of providers um, registering just for the sake of it. It's it's not going to be good. Um, I think that oh, that's it's a really hard one to answer, Paul. Um, <laughs> Look, if they can financially afford to, yes, if they're in the right, I don't think anyone should ever rush into it. They should be starting to definitely look at the process and how they can make it work for their for their business. So if they're a really big organisation, they should really start by looking at um, the documented system that they have and is it you know they should really start to already look at that before just rushing into it ensuring that they are um, meeting the requirements already but starting that process off slowly maybe working closely with um, with a consultant to support them if they're unsure what to do I don't think anyone should be rushing into it for the sake of it um, and I, I don't know if you agree with me on that Tanya yeah, look, it's, it is a hard one. I've spent the last year telling people only register if you need to register and play, you know, play in the current system and the current system means you don't need to be registered. I think it really depends on a few things. I think it depends on your risk tolerance. Um, you know, I'm a little bit risk adverse. I've I've said all along that I would always be a registered provider myself because I like external validation. I like processes. I like other people telling me I'm going, I'm on the right track. I, and I would want to feel, if I was delivering services to people with disability, I would want to feel like I was doing the best I can. And I would want that stamp of external, external validation to prove that I am doing things as well as the government expects. Um, in saying that, I don't think everyone needs to do it right now. I think that there will always be an easier transition process for registered providers than if you try to register under the new scheme. Um, although that's never that's not my advice for people looking at aged care registration. I'm telling everyone to wait until we have the whole framework in July next year to mm. look at the new home care registration because the standards are so different. Any work you do now will be thrown out. But I feel like so when I first started working in the NGIS space, you know, before the rollout, there's been four different application processes to become a registered provider. And at each time, they've always had a process that's different for transitioning providers. So if you were, if you came in into the NGIS under the state-based NGIS under in New South Wales, it's called third-party verification. It was called something different in each state. You then had a different process to transition to the NGIS commissions process um, and so it, it is it is going to be more information given to you and a different pathway if you're already registered to move across than if you try to register at that point so I would mm. think that you would take the next three to five years which is it's going to take at least that long to to get your standards up to what's expected today and yes that'll change but if you want to be in at the long haul the only constant is going to be change and you're going to have to get used to this process of change because this isn't going to be the last review. It's the first review, right? Uh, first biggest review. Um, and so I think if you want to be in it for the long game, you need to learn how to interface with government and you need to learn how to read government documents. And I, I'm, I'm not sure the answer is um, about the owner's how you build their owner's capacity to understand those things. But I feel like at least the clients that I work with that understand government legislation, and I look at my RTO clients, my childcare centre clients, and my NDIS clients, and the ones that embrace the regulation and these waves of changes and that can get on with it and build that resilience are the ones that stay long-term and don't get overwhelmed when yep. these things continue to change. So I feel like it's a good idea to to align yourself with the current standards, to slowly, as Haley said, go through the process in a time that suits you based on playing with the current rules that we know, aligning yourself to where you are and that the transition period would then be easier going into being whatever these new standards are. And if you're, if it gets easier, if you're used to being, you know, a 10 out of 10 compliance and all of a sudden it's a 6 out of 10, you're going to feel like it's dramatically easier. Where if you're coming from a zero compliance, 
clients and you have to build up to a six, that becomes dramatically harder. So I feel yeah. like if you align to today's standards and we say they're going to get easier, you're going to be advantage. It's going to be an advantage to you and your system's going to be stronger. And really at the heart of the whole regulation system, although it might not be executed as well as it could be, the heart of it is around having a really robust governance and operational management system in your business to be able to reduce your business risks. And I think that if you did that really well, it wouldn't matter what standards you're applying to because your business would be robust enough to overcome any of the risks that come out of regulation changes. Um, so if it was me and I was looking, if I was an unregistered provider, I would be doing an internal audit aligning myself with the current standards, making sure I'm meeting the current standards, and then go through the process in a time that suits me best based on my finances mm. and based on my other operational deadlines and timeframes. And I would want to be registered before the new scheme is released or transitioned so I could transition. And, and the government will do big workshops around providers transitioning and what this means. There'll be toolkits provided for you. There'll be support provided to you. There's people like yeah myself and Haley that will understand how you move from one to the other and can guide you through that process as opposed to trying to figure out how we move new people in while we're transitioning current people across. Was that really, was that answer yeah, your question, Paul? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just, Sorry, Haley. Can I, can I just add to that? And something that Bill Shorten said um, last week was that he said we want to talk to people so we want to get it right and we will take the time. So I think that's really important in that it will be, yeah. um, a you know, they will support them with the transition. It's not going to be, um, you know, everyone sort of has to figure it out on their own. There will be the support and they do want to hear from providers. So um, I do think that that's just something to add to that. But couldn't agree with you more, Tanya. I think an internal mm. order is, like I was saying, about looking at currently um, looking at where their um, business is at and where their compliance is at, is it actually meeting any of the requirements now um, and starting to slowly work towards that rather than it be a big um, scary process. I think that's the best way to do it. Um, and that reduces yep. the risk of any disruption to the supports being provided because when a provider starts to focus on changing to become NDIS registered, there is a lot of time and effort that they're putting into changing everything in their system um, to meet those requirements. Yep. So if they do that slowly, I think that would be really good for continuity of, of support and services as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, so I want to talk now about figure 14, which is these four categories that they're suggesting. I've never shared my screen on this before, but I'm going to see if I can. Um, can you see that? Um, if anyone that yep, will be joining go. us on YouTube, I'll put it up there. If not, if you're not joining us on YouTube and you're joining us um, via audio, you can download the figure 14 uh, item as part of the NDIS review report. Um, but it's basically this little um, table that has uh, advanced registration, general registration, basic registration and enrollment. And so you've got the different items for me, the most interesting thing here is the practice standards being applied to three, but obviously variations of that, um, and this idea of enrolment. Um, and so for enrolment, I did have a definition um, that I actually put up here. Sorry, now everyone's seeing my horrible notes. Um, no, here. So we've got for enrolment, we've got enrolment of all providers of the lowest risk supports, providing full visibility of the market and applying lightest touch requirements through a simple online process. For example, supports that uh, general protection available under the Australian consumer law, such as consumables, equipment, technology, home and vehicle modifications. Then we have, so let's just talk about enrolment for a second. So enrolment, they need a code of conduct. All of the workers need worker screening checks. They need to have a complaint process, but they don't need to report incidents. They don't need to meet practice standards. They don't have performance measurements in place. They don't have any kind of audit and they don't have a process of suitable key people. Um, and they do have a small amount, we're imagining, of ongoing monitoring and compliance. 
What do you think about that, Haley? this idea of enrolment? And it seems like mm-hmm. potentially this is just for assistive tech and consumables. I can understand to a degree, but um, I don't understand, you know, if an incident occurred, why they don't have any um, obligation to report incidents. That, that does baffle me. I don't really quite understand that. Um, and to not have to adhere to any practice standards at all, um, yeah, I'm really a bit unsure about how what I think of that. Um, what do you think? Well, originally, the way that I read it, yeah, go, Paul, you go. So the the way I read it in that note that you had, uh, for example, Australian general protections available under uh, you know under Australian consumer law are sufficient. This seems to me like obviously things you know like uh, you know supplying assistive technology equipment and that sort of thing, but even would you say that that would cover like a uh, independent support worker? No. Where they need to do those sort of things because it seems like it's just literally that that area of supplying items um, and, and products where they may not actually be really in in contact much with people at all, whether it be a you know. Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy of a chemist. provider that might be like like a, a chemist, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Consumer law applies to them. If someone injures themselves inside the chemist, there's already a process involved in that through whether it be insurance or, you know, they can then go to like ACCC if they're unhappy with uh, something that's happened there. I, I see it as the NDIA trying to take away some of their responsibility in regards to who they have to really look hard into and they don't want to have to look hard into for example, a chemist. Yeah. I, is that I how you see that? It is, yeah. So originally when the practice standards first came out, I think 2019, there was a rule that anybody who was a proprietary limited company had to be certified and not verified. And so we had a lot of chemists and mobility uh, shops um, that I personally had to go and audit on site through a whole certification audit Um when they were just selling a mobility scooter. And I'd literally wear high-vis and walk around a factory floor where there was a factory selling mobility scooters, as an example, or wheelchairs. Um, and it was always baffling as to how can I even audit the certification standards because they don't have support plans. They don't have governance. They have, sure. Mm. You know, um, medical device companies, um, at the Apple shop, um, you know, Thermomix Australia, all of these type of people were people that I audited or consulted for that went through a certification pathway because they were a company, but they were only doing equipment supply. So the big thing with people selling equipment and when that rule changed, I think it was six months or 12 months later, they changed the rule that you could be um you could be verified by group only, not by company structure. And when that happened, then all of these people who were certified went back to verified. And the the difference in most verified providers or like equipment suppliers, mobility scooters, chemists, beds, I've registered many bed shops to sell, um, you know, specialized beds. Um, the difference there is that, and I think why they don't need practice standards is because the service agreement doesn't make any sense because they're not in a service agreement. It's a once-off transaction. You're buying a bed from me once, a $3,000 bed once. You're buying your consumables from me. Maybe that's more often, but it's a once-off transaction as opposed to a service that's provided over a period of time. Um, and like I had to create many service agreements for, for these we had to basically go through big structures and and at the time change over wording so it wasn't called a receipt, it was called a service agreement um, and had to put in terms and conditions like cancellation things on invoices so that bed shops and um, chemists could actually meet the standards. So I think that this is where this is coming from is that people like chemists um, shouldn't have to abide by any of the practice standards because they're not actually providing a support to people with disability. They're selling a product as a once-off transaction. And there are mm. things like Australian Consumer Law, the ACCC, Fair Trading, and other consumer bodies that would be able to be escalated to if that was an issue. Um, the same as, you know, if you're selling an iPad or any of those types of things. So I think that makes sense as long as it's only those services that you would call a product as opposed to a service. Yeah. That's how I, I kind of see the it. Home and, home and vehicle modifications, yeah. 
Yeah, I think you made yeah. a good point. Mm. So let's look at basic registration. So the blurb for basic registration is um, for all low-risk supports applying lighter touch registration requirements while still allowing for regulatory oversight against the practice standards where required. For example, sole traders, smaller organisations support such as social and community participation and supports involving limited one-to-one -one contact with people with disability. So this one concerns me a little bit more. Um, they do need a code of conduct, worker screening, complaints process, incident reporting, a simpler generalised standards for support types. Um, they do not need any type of audit, but they do a self-assessment and an attestation of compliance with the standards in place of an audit. Um, and so for me... Oh, when I read that, I go, wow, mm. we're moving support workers and independent support workers mm. I feel would fit here. I just wonder around this self-assessment and this attestation of compliance, which is actually something that's done annually for RTOs. Each year, an RTO has to send a statement that says they comply with standards because they get a five or a six or a seven-year um, audit cycle um, once they pass their first initial audit. Um, and I kind of just wonder if they haven't been through an audit to begin with, how do they understand the requirements that they're supposed to be meeting? How do they understand what a reportable incident is and how to do a complaints process? And if no one's really looking at their documents, are we actually, all we're doing then is providing a registration element and we're indemnifying the government to say, well, they said that they were doing the right thing. I just worry about the lack of a, a second pair of eyes knowing how many, like this is basically core support providers as long as, like I'm reading it as core support providers as long as they're not providing any type yeah. of housing or, or medical um, support. Yeah, like it says. Is that what you're reading out of it, Hayley? such a social and community participation. So how can they not have to be adhering to any kind of, or at least not have any oversight with a, um, an audit every 18 months. How can that be? I won't understand that. Don't understand that. Yeah. I really agree with, with that because I think there's a lot of risk with still, um, you know, support workers providing core supports, taking uh, people with disability out into the community. Um, and if you think about someone with epilepsy, for example, um, and, you know, the, the seizure first aid that needs to be um, implemented should they have a seizure when out and about in the community. There's a lot of high risk with um, taking participants, taking people out into the community. Um, so I don't see how that can be basic um, low-risk support. Yeah, I agree. And it doesn't seem to indicate where people like therapeutic supports fit in either, like where is counselling and where is therapy fitting into this and where is support, you know, I guess support coordination's not fitting in anymore, um, but where is the casework element sitting here? Is that seen as light touch? Where is disability employment services fitting in? It seems like they've kind of, if you think of the current 36 registration groups they've kind of only focusing on the core supports and kind of they've got you know equipment supply separate but like where's gardening and maintenance and like is that basic registration is that enrollment I think mm. I, I need to see yeah, a map and document support. of what registration groups I mean, yeah. fit where yeah that's what I was about um, to ask. So what, what are the definitions in more detail there's you know there needs to be um a really detailed definition for each and a mapping document of all the registration groups, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, general registration is seen as medium risk supports and the definition there is all medium risk supports applying graduated approaches to regulatory requirements and oversight depending on factors impacting the level of risk so, example, high-intensity supports, supports that require additional skills and training such as complex bowel or injections, and supports involving significant one-on-one -on -one contact. So, it seems to me that this general registration includes Module 1, Module 2A maybe, Module 3, 
um, early childhood supports maybe fits inside there and all the other disability support worker type roles outside of, um, you know, maybe group environments. Is that how you're reading it? I would think this is one that I um, don't really agree with entirely. I see them as all high-risk support. So why aren't they advanced registration? Why are they? And I feel like there's a bit of a gap between the general registration and basic registration with all of these high-risk modules um, and supports being provided. There's a real jump from basic to general. Um, but really what we're talking about in terms of Module 1 specifically um, is high-risk and to me would be um, an advanced registration. The, the good thing is, I mean, they have to have, you know, audit of compliance with all of the standards proportionate to yeah. what they're providing, I guess. But to specify it as being general, um, I don't really understand that part because they're not medium risk supports. To me, they're high risk supports. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then advanced registration is for all high-risk supports applying more intensive regulatory requirements and oversight where supports may pose an inherent high risk um, and require high-level technical competence, such as supports delivered in high-risk settings, such as daily living supports in a formal closed setting like group homes. So it seems to me that this is really talking about group home support. So we're really talking about SIL um still supports or ILO supports or other living type accommodation supports um, and it's really focusing on the setting the supports are provided in as opposed to the actual supports and I kind of wonder about like the case of Anne-Marie Smith in in Adelaide she would have then mm -hmm. fallen under maybe basic registration or general registration and the setting of her being in her own home did not reduce the risk for her specifically so how then can we say that only group home environments are higher risk yeah, what about the what about those people that are living alone receiving support from a sole worker? You know? Yeah. Um, exactly right, where um they they should be sort of defined under advanced registration, I believe. And specifically yeah. where Anne Marie Smith required high high intensity support. So yeah, yeah exactly. And if she would 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 have been under basic registration or general registration I wouldn't quite understand that yeah yeah me too um it it kind of suggests that the practice standards are going to change because it talks about general standards and support support specific standards um I think that potentially this means that the modules as we know them are up for review um, and I also, I, the, the other thing that I noted was that there was no mention anywhere of restrictive practices or behaviour support plans or complex behaviours around psychosocial behaviours or around complex mental health issues. Um, and for me, that would be advanced registration, but there doesn't seem to be a mention anywhere about what type of provider that would be if you are working with people with a behaviour support plan in place. Yeah, yeah. Agree. So I'm going to stop I, sharing I my, when, my when notes the government now. We've kind of had a look through that. Do you think so? A, a few, a few questions that I had for you around that, Haley, were: um, What do you think this means for the role of the AQAs? It seems to be not mentioned anywhere. Do you have any thoughts around if this means we will stay with an AQA system or that we'll move to the regulator regulating directly if there was you know, a different system in place? I don't know that they're going to move to, um, to. I think they'll still use AQAs, but I think they're going to have to look at how they train all the auditors and um, the different pathways that are taken to. And um, because we all know not all auditors can audit high-risk modules too. So really it's going to change a lot. <laughs> it's going to change a lot of... Um, of what's in of the process now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I think there's lots of changes coming. What What do you think? A lot of changes in is... a lot of grey areas. There's not. It's not clear enough yet. <laughs> yeah, 
I think the devil's going to be in the detail and we just don't have, you know, we don't even know if these if these um, items are going to be accepted by the government, if they're going to be all taken on board. You know, I think it's going to take quite some time for the government to review all of this and understand the intricacies of all the decisions that they're making to actually accept the recommendations. Um, and then it's going to take a long time for this yeah. to be rolled out because we're, we're talking probably 10 if not 20 or 30 pieces of individual legislation that needs to be updated and addressed um, and that means going through the upper yeah. and lower houses of parliament for each one of those changes so I, I can't see this being a quick process by any means. Yeah no I completely agree and something else I, I wonder if um, if AQAs will only be involved with you know general and advanced registration and have nothing to do with basic registration it does say they wouldn't have to um take part in an audit but obviously the commission then will be having to process all of the enrollments in basic registration and then have the general and advanced registrations going through aqas or like you said are they all going to move to do it um in-house yeah it would be interesting to get an AQA's perspective on this. Maybe I'll see if I can find an AQA who wants yeah. to chat about what they what they're seeing from their their perspective. Um, cool. Well, I think we've kind of talked happening. through. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting to know. Um, I think we've I think we have lost Paul. Um, I think Paul's unfortunately dropped off. Um, but it's been really interesting talking through all of those points. I think. Um, we're kind of uh, in agreement about the, you know these changes. I think there's definitely some some positive things here. I think making the standards more proportionate to sizes of business uh, can only be positive. I think that if we make their standards more easy to meet and easy to understand, then providers are going to comply, and hopefully that means a less administrative burden and higher quality of supports. I think the devil's just going to be in the detail around how do we go from where we are to get there? What's that process look like? What supports are there for providers to understand where they fit and what this means for their business? Um, and I guess that's my general takeaway. Was there anything, What was there any other general thoughts that you had, Hayley, that you wanted to share with us or anything that we haven't talked about today that you would like to mention? too specifically I do think it's really good to um that they are considering you know and whether practice standards will be um there'll be specific practice standards to seal providers and um, support coordinators or I guess navigators to um soon have to meet because there is really at the moment nothing specifically that seal providers have to meet so I'd be really curious to know what kind of additional specific practice standards will come about for the audit of compliance um, in terms of that advanced registration and what the difference is and how that's going to work um, in terms of audits and um, yeah I think there's a lot to think about in that I think the challenges too um, are something that definitely need to be talked about more and explored for example um, if a provider if a participant is currently receiving uh, you know say once all providers are required to be registered and they have an immediate need for a, a clinical support need, for example, urinary catheter care, but their provider needs to be registered for that. What do they do? And it's those challenges and things, those situations to think about um, what would occur in that to ensure the continuity of support for the participant um, and also the risk to the business too. In, in that. There's so many more things to think about and those challenges that I think need to be talked about more because I think they're all the things that providers are currently thinking, what are we going to do and participants do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that's very a very good point to make. Um, yeah, so it'd be interesting to see where we go from here. Um, we might have to get you on again, Haley. once we've got a little bit more of the detail to unpack how we help providers transition to whatever these new standards are um, and how they can, you know, go through that process in a way that isn't too disruptive to their businesses. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Haley. It's, it's been amazing to talk to another auditor through these standards. It's really helped me to understand them a little bit better from a different perspective and really think through what does this look like um, and really help me to try to figure out how I can help my clients navigate this as well as, you know, get some information out there for the sector as it comes to hand. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thank you, Paul, as well. I know you've dropped off, but thank you for having me um, as part of um, the podcast today. It's been great. Thank you so much. Um, and for everybody else, this um, we have one more episode for 2023 going live tomorrow, the 19th of December. That is our season wrap-up for 2023. Um, and if you haven't listened to the last two episodes about the review, we did do one on Friday with Storm about the uh, changes to plan management and support coordination. And we did one the following week with Debbie Kindness from NGS Property Australia talking about the changes around living and accommodation. So if you're interested in checking those out, you can do that on all of the different channels, whether it be Podbean, Spotify, Apple, or any other podcasting systems. Um, we hope that today has been useful. Um, Hayley, do you have some contact details if any of our listeners wanted to reach out and talk to you about their specific issues or had questions for you at all? Yeah, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can check out my profile, um, Hayley Asaf on LinkedIn um, and website uh, www. Wonderful. Thanks, Great. Tanya. Great. Thank you so much for joining us again. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're liking the podcast, please give us a review and share it with a friend. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast with Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. We hope you found today's episode informative and valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating and share it with others who could benefit from our insights. Until next time, keep thriving.